Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher, the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to get our recipes, to stream our television show, or to get our latest cookbooks. Here's this week's show.
This is Bill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. He looked at me as if, there's your turkey now, you know, you can put a little rope around its neck and lead it out from the market. And I was like, what? I think I need a dress. I'm not killing this turkey. That was Sandeep Roy, a reporter based in Calcutta, India. We'll be hearing from him later in the show about his quest to cook Thanksgiving dinner in India, a story that takes a very unlikely turn. Today on our show, we have all of our regular contributors seated around the Thanksgiving table. Dan Pashman of The Sporkful starts us off with a solution for Thanksgiving anxieties. Dan, happy Thanksgiving. Thank you, Chris. You too. You must be worried about Thanksgiving. I mean, all these things to be concerned about with the physics of serving and eating Thanksgiving. Well, yes, I do worry about those things, but I have an additional anxiety on my mind this year, Chris. Of course. Well, you know, I, I don't know if you feel this way, Chris, because you know, I, I was I worked in news radio for a long time before I got into the world of food. And I always was passionate about food as a hobby, but when I decided to make food my career, I was worried that I would fall out of love with it, that if it became a job, I wouldn't get the same amount of pleasure from eating and cooking. Did you ever worry about that in your life? No, not actually, I have loved the world of food since I was a kid, and uh, I am lucky enough to to work in a field I still love. I mean, I, I just tasted three things this morning and liked two and a half of them. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, there you go, yeah. And, and I will say in the years since I started the Sporkful podcast, mostly I have followed the same path as you. I, it has only deepened my appreciation for food, and I've, got, I've learned about more different kinds of cuisines and dishes, and I've become a better cook, and, and overall it's great. But there's one problem. Uh-oh. Becoming a member of the food media has started to make me dread Thanksgiving. Why? Because there's a phenomenon that I have identified as the wheel of infinite Thanksgiving anxiety. <laughs> and it, it, go, it goes like this, Chris, okay. which is that members of the food media, like you and me, feel compelled to come up with something new every year. Oh, that's Here's the true. new way to do it. That's you know, true. Here's a new way to cook your turkey. Here's a new appetizer. Yeah. And... That makes those of us who cook Thanksgiving at home feel like, wait, am I doing it wrong? Is there a better way? Maybe the thing I make every year isn't good enough. And so you feel inadequate and you feel pressure to change up your game. But the wheel of the anxiety is that then our readers and listeners, and they want me to say something new on Thanksgiving, on The Sporkful. Let and me tell I, you a story. This year, go on. I said to all my editorial staff, I've been doing a new turkey for 34 years. I've done 34 different ways to cook a turkey. And this year, we're going to do a, a holiday issue, November, December issue, without a turkey. And that lasted till Monday. <laughs> and then we realized, you're right, that that wheel is like this karmic turkey wheel. It just keeps turning, and you can't get off. You have to do a turkey. So we finally did a tea-rubbed maple turkey. You know, we, we went to China for Lapsang Sushong and figured out how to use it, which was a new thing. But I didn't think it was possible to do a new turkey after 34 years. And in fact, it was. But I'm on the wheel. I'm, I, I can't get away. Do you recognize your part as both a perpetrator and a victim? I'm not a victim. I, I, I have a different point of view about victimhood <laughs> here. But there, there's some other deeper level of anxiety that all home cooks have not just people who are in the business of, of providing the recipes. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that we're constantly getting these messages that are telling us that there's 25 other ways for you to do what you're doing that are going to be better. 
But one of the things that I find that is so contradictory to the wheel of infinite Thanksgiving anxiety is that most of us just want to eat the thing we ate when we were nine yes, at Thanksgiving. Exactly. And I, I feel a lot of pressure because I have a four-year-old and a seven-year-old, and I feel like I am creating those formative Thanksgiving memories right now, and I need to settle on a recipe of, of the major classic Thanksgiving dishes and do it the same every year so that I can form that taste memory for them. Oh, no, no, Dan, 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 I just okay. you. Here's the deal. Just give up on that idea that somehow in the formative years you're creating the perfect you know, future. Uh, so just just do what you want to do. Don't worry about it. You, you don't think that it will increase the odds that my kids will come to my house for Thanksgiving if my turkey is better? No. I think all you do is relax and try to be a good dad and don't worry about it. And that will increase the odds of them coming back. <laughs> <laughs> if the mashed potatoes are okay, but dad's happy, then you're good. I'm going to write a two-page book about parenting. And that's, that's it. Christopher Kimball's pamphlet right. on happiness. Right. If the father's happy, the kids are happy. If the mother's happy, the kids are happy. That's good advice. But here's the problem, Chris. What you just said, I took that as license to continue to tinker with my recipes forever. And, and that sucks me back into the wormhole of like, hmm, maybe I should rub my turkey with tea. And now I'm anxious. The- <laughs> I think, Dan, Thanksgiving is the day where everything can go wrong and it doesn't matter. Let me put it that way. It isn't really about the food at the end of the day, right? I mean, that's, I know that's a weird thing to say about the big food day of the year, but it's not. It's, it's being with family. And so how, how do you reconcile that with the fact that, that you have a whole test kitchen full of people working so incredibly hard to come up with a whole new slate of recipes every year for a holiday that now you're telling us isn't even about the food? I don't. I'm, I, I, I'm capable of holding two totally opposite ideas at the same time, as everyone who knows me understands. <laughs> I, I just think everyone should relax. Don't worry about it. If, if you want to make the same recipe your grandmother made, go for it. Uh, I'm going to take your advice. I'm not going to worry about the food. And the other thing that I'm going to do that I'm prescribing to myself this year, Chris, to take myself off of the wheel of infinite Thanksgiving anxiety is that I am declaring this year's Sporkful podcast Thanksgiving special to be the last Sporkful Thanksgiving special. Yeah, and until the day after Thanksgiving, you start planning the next one. <laughs> Dan, happy Thanksgiving, and, and may you have an anxiety-free day. Not likely, but thank you, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> it's the sentiment that matters here, pal. <laughs> that was Dan Pashman, host of the Sporkful Podcast. Mill Street Radio is also available as a podcast. You can subscribe, download our shows on your phone, and listen anytime. New shows are available every Friday on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and Spotify. Mashed potatoes are essential to the Thanksgiving menu, at least in my house. And Jay Kenji Lopez-Alt is here to teach us a bit about the science of cooking mashed potatoes. Kenji, how are you? I'm doing good. Uh, we've asked you to opine on mashed potatoes. I've been asked about this for, for decades. And to really understand the science, because it sounds like it's something that should be simple, but I assume there's more to it than, than we think. So, so tell me about the science of mashed potatoes. 
Well, when it comes to the holidays, I think one of the biggest problems people have with mashed potatoes is serving them and making them in advance. The issue being that the starch in potatoes retrogrades, which is, you know, what, what happens when bread stales. Starch molecules, which, you know, when heated and cooked, they're sort of flexible and they form this kind of flexible network. But as they start to cool down, um, they start to crystallize again. And what this does is it causes your bread, um, or in this case, your mashed potatoes, to become firmer. And I think, um, you know, th- this is something that, that comes up time and again over Thanksgiving uh, or, or Christmas where you make the mashed potatoes in advance, but then when you try and reheat them, they come out lumpy or they come out too thick um, or, you know, worse, you try and reheat them in a pot and they end up scorching on the bottom. Right. Is there any way of preventing that retrograde, that crystallization of the, of the molecules is, is, or is that just going to happen no matter how you make the mashed potatoes? There's not really any way to prevent it. It it just happens naturally when cooked starches start to cool down. So the question is, what are the tricks for, for making mashed potatoes in advance so that you don't really have to worry about them at the last minute? Now, there's a few different ways you can do this. The way I like to do it is uh, what my friend, uh, my colleague Daniel Gritzer at Serious Seats, he calls it the restaurant reheat um, because it's a technique that they use in restaurants, which is that you hold back some of the, uh, the milk and butter um, or the cream or what, you know, whatever you're using as your liquid, buttermilk, stock, it doesn't matter. Hold some of that back when you initially make the mashed potatoes. And then to reheat the mashed potatoes, you start by heating up that liquid um, and then you add the mashed potatoes to the pot. Um, and what this allows you to do is it sort of heats up the mashed potatoes gently so that they soften up uh, before they get a chance to really sort of stick to the bottom of the pot and scorch. The other really good technique that I've found is it stems from, from sous vide mashed potatoes. And so basically all you do is you store your cooked mashed potatoes inside a plastic bag in the fridge. And then the next day when you want to reheat them, all you got to do is drop them in a bowl or a pot of hot water. Hmm. You know, if you happen to have a sous vide cir- circulator, you can set it for, say, you know, 150 degrees and that'll get your mashed potatoes nice and hot within an hour or so. Um, without a circulator, it works totally fine. Just bring a bring a pot of water to a simmer, add your bag of mashed potatoes, put the lid on, take it off the heat, and then just, you know, put it aside somewhere in your kitchen. And in about an hour, you're going to have, have potatoes that are, you know, just about as good as they were when they were huh. uh, freshly made. That's after 37 years, that's a new one on me. I don't, gee, um, I, <laughs> I think the bag is interesting. And, and I, what I do too is, is add milk or cream and, and then reheat. But, you, but your point about withholding some of that liquid initially is smart because then you end up with exactly the right texture. Uh, so I just have to ask, can you reheat mashed potatoes in microwave? Yeah, yeah. And, and in fact, you know, if, if you don't go with any of these other methods, say, you know, you don't want to cook in plastic or uh, you already made the mashed potatoes and you didn't withhold any liquid, um, the microwave is actually probably the best tool in the kitchen for reheating mashed potatoes. The reason being that when, when you're cooking on a stovetop, you're relying completely on uh, the, the metal pan bottom. So, so it's it conduction. makes scorching right. very easy. A microwave, on the other hand, uh, those microwaves penetrate the mashed potatoes by, you know, a centimeter or two, which means that they, they cook the inside of the mashed potato, reheat the insides of the mashed potatoes uh, much more efficiently. So in the microwave, you know, it's a lot more foolproof than using the stovetop. I never thought I'd see the day when you'd recommend a microwave, but um, I, <laughs> I, I guess I have. I mean, well, wonders never cease. You just don't, don't put your turkey in there. Don't put my turkey in. That'll dry it out. Kenji, have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Thank you for the tips on mashed potatoes and enjoy the rest of the meal. Thank you. Thank you, too. That was J. Kenji Lopez-Alt, author of The Food Lab, Better Home Cooking Through Science. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Coming up next on this week's Thanksgiving special, we'll hear from Sandeep Roy in Calcutta, India, about his near disaster trying to cook Thanksgiving dinner after the break.
I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. Ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an allagash white. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. (laughs) Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook I often cook with it so if I'm creating some kind of stew I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash obviously (laughs) and I think because of that Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, Yeah, that's really good.
This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Most Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Here in America, there's no problem finding a turkey to roast for Thanksgiving, but Sandeep Roy reported this next story about searching for a turkey in India for station KALW. It was admittedly a moment of sheer American holiday nostalgia, cooking a turkey in India. I thought it could be a fun adventure. I just didn't realize that finding a turkey was the least of it. In pursuit of the Thanksgiving meal, but no turkey in sight, Sandeep set out on a quest to find one in Calcutta. I have him here in the studio today to talk about his adventure searching for the holiday bird abroad. Sandeep, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. You uh, (laughs) recently uh, undertook a rather strange task uh, in Calcutta. You decided to find and cook a turkey, a Thanksgiving turkey, uh, in India. And so let's start at the beginning. What what gave you this idea? Well, I lived in America for 20 years, and Thanksgiving was, in fact, one of my favorite holidays. And it was probably one of the holidays that I actually missed when I moved back to India. But I never really thought that it would be possible to do a turkey here until my friend Milena made a deal with me. Here's what she said. In the beginning, we had a little bit that bet of... Uh okay, who's going to find the turkey first versus who's going to find the oven first? Okay, so you uh, you got to find a turkey. Do you go online? Do you ask shopkeepers? Uh, what's, what's the first thing you did? I did it the old-fashioned way. I went to this uh, local enormous market, which has been around for over 100 years from British times. And the joke in Calcutta is, You can find anything in this sort of cavernous, maze-like market. And I went to the poultry section, and somebody said, you should be able to find a turkey there. And in fact, I was able to locate a poultry dealer who said that he could get me a turkey. Here's what he told me. Don't worry, I'll get you a good turkey raised at home, eats rice and grain, not one of those factory-fed ones. As it turns out, it is a more common bird than I realize, and even the government of West Bengal, the state that I live in, has actually been promoting turkey farming among poultry farmers, so I could have done this whole thing with a lot less trouble, but then it wouldn't have made for as colorful a story. So did he actually have a turkey there? He had to order a turkey, had to import a turkey. Where did the turkey come from? He didn't have the turkey there. I had to get it as a matter of faith. He said he had turkeys at his village and that he could get me a turkey if I ordered it in advance. He would just bring it over. I would have to pay him um, some amount of money as a deposit. And then he would show up with the turkey on the appointed date and I could come and collect it. And uh, I just decided to have faith in the universe. And, uh, you know, this is supposed to be about Thanksgiving after all, so I must trust. And I just gave him some money, hoping that uh, he would actually be there with the turkey when I showed up. But so, so, by the way, I assume you end up with a live turkey, not a dead turkey, right? 
Well, you assume correct. I sort of had a bit of the butterball image in my mind, you know, from the, the freezer at the Safeway or the local grocery <laughs> store. Right. Um, so I didn't actually expect to show up on that morning and him pointing to a fairly large white bird with a red wattle that was just sort of sitting there among his chickens. And uh, he looked at me as if I, there's your turkey now, you know, you can put a little rope around its neck and lead it out from the market. And I was like, what? I think I need a dress. I'm not killing this turkey. So, so the end of the story is going to be the turkey's still alive and is your pet. I, I did give it a name. I called it Snow White, and uh, and it was a little difficult um, following this poultry farmer down the street through a crowded marketplace where he was taking the turkey to a butcher after I said I needed it dressed, and you know I'm I'm sort of tagging along behind it, looking at this bird really guiltily, you know. So he's carrying the turkey in his arms through the crowded market and to a butcher, and you got to a butcher, and uh, he butchered the turkey? Yes, he butchered the turkey. I then brought the turkey home only to realize later that uh, the feet were still there, (laughs) you know, the claws. So, So it necessitated another trip to another butcher. So now you have a warm, dead bird with no feet. Uh, How did you find a pot? That was one of the issues that we had not thought about. So I had a little box oven on the side, which which was barely big enough for a chicken. Definitely not a turkey. So my friend Milena had sourced uh, a friend's place where they had a sort of industrial-sized kitchen for entertaining with an oven that was big enough. But then we realized neither of us had any pots big enough to hold the turkey while marinating it. And then it suddenly occurred to us that one thing that was possibly big enough was a hefty trash bag I had brought back <laughs> from the United States. And that hefty trash bag was the perfect size for my turkey and its turkey marinade, which came from a recipe from a friend's cookbook in California, um, my friend Lakshmi Hiramat's cookbook. And she had this pomegranate juice marinated mm. turkey with Indian spices. So, so that turkey sat in a hefty trash bag, a fresh hefty trash bag, of course, in my <laughs> refrigerator and marinated it until it was ready to be roasted, whereupon we took this trash bag, balanced it on our laps, booked an Uber, and sort of sloshed our way over to the oven. So, so the recipe is one Indian turkey with the feet off, uh, one recipe from California, and one hefty trash bag, right? <laughs> Those are the things Correct. you needed. That's the, that's the magic combination for Thanksgiving in India. Sandeep, thank you. Thank you. That was Sandeep Roy, a reporter based in Calcutta, India. That story originally was reported for station KALW. You know, trying to make Thanksgiving in India may seem like a stretch, yet Thanksgiving is celebrated across the world. The Netherlands is the home of many of the original pilgrims, and so in late November, a church service commemorates a Thanksgiving of sorts, complete with coffee and cookies. Liberia, oddly enough, has a Thanksgiving tradition. It was started by freed slaves, and even Granada has gotten into the act. My favorite example, however, of American holidays abroad is, of course, the Christmas in Japan. Starting in 1974, Kentucky Fried Chicken started selling Christmas in a bucket. You can even get cake and champagne along with the chicken. As they say, it's the thought that counts.
Next up, we investigate the truth about turkey and tryptophan. Is this chemical making you sleepy, or is it the food and the booze? Our regular contributor, Dr. Aaron Carroll, has the answer. Dr. Aaron Carroll, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Uh, my favorite day, and I hope your favorite day is upon us, and uh, the image of sleepy uncles on the couch after the meal uh, is floating around my, my memory. So the question is, uh, does turkey make you sleepy? Everyone seems to know this, and I don't even like to say believe. They know it to be true, and it baffles me. Um, I've often said that if there was one myth, or especially food myth, that I could get rid of before I die, it would be this one. There's no real link whatsoever uh, between the idea that, that turkey and sleepiness, that the, the idea that they go together. And what's disturbing about this one is not only does everyone believe it to be true, they all believe they know why it's true. They're sure it has something to do with tryptophan. There's a kernel of truth in this, the idea that tryptophan is marketed as a sleep aid. Tryptophan is an amino acid. It's found in lots of foods. Um, and it does, when you take it, help induce sleepiness. But there's a lot of this that makes it not associated with turkey. The first thing is turkey does not have a lot of tryptophan in it. A four-ounce serving of turkey has about 350 milligrams of tryptophan. That's the exact same amount or close enough to ground beef or chicken. Hmm. It's actually less tryptophan than you would find in many pork products or cheese. And no one ever says the ham and cheese sandwich will make us sleepy. They only say the turkey will make us sleepy. Secondly, turkey doesn't even have that much tryptophan in it. it that, that, as I said, that 350 milligrams is significantly less than the 500 or 1,000 milligrams that people would normally have to take in order to get sleep-inducing effects. So, But the big thing is that if you buy tryptophan in a drugstore and you look in the side of the bottle, it will say you really need to take this on an empty stomach because tryptophan is poorly absorbed with food. So the worst way to get tryptophan to be absorbed would be in a huge meal, which is, of course, exactly where it would be on Thanksgiving. So not a lot of tryptophan in there. It won't be really absorbed. And turkey is not sort of this big bowl of tryptophan that everyone assumes it to be. There's nothing about this at all that would lead one to believe that it's sleepy. And yet we are convinced, utterly convinced, that it's the tryptophan and turkey and a big Thanksgiving meal that makes us sleepy. So the obvious question is, I mean, tryptophan's a weird word. It's come into the vernacular. Everyone's heard of it. And as you said at the outset, this has become common knowledge. It's an urban myth, but it's, it's, it's knowledge among 300 million of us. Yeah. Uh, how is it possible that something that's so bogus has become uh, a certainty among everyone at Thanksgiving. Well, I think it's one of those, again, where because we see a link, we have to assume that there's a good causal pathway. It makes a good story. There's plenty of reasons why people might get sleepy on Thanksgiving. A huge meal might make you a bit sleepier than usual. Drinking alcohol can make you sleepy, which many people do on Thanksgiving. Really not wanting to do the dishes, I suppose, could make you sleepy on Thanksgiving as well. And, and spending 10 hours with all your relatives around the table. That'll do it too. <laughs> yes, trying to. So we need a reason, and we've latched onto this one. And it, I, I agree with you. I think part of it is that it's made its way into popular media so greatly. I remember there was a great Seinfeld episode where they blamed you know, tryptophan and turkey on, on falling asleep in a bad situation. I can't tell you how many TV shows I'll be forced to watch or news episodes in, in the coming weeks that will talk about this exact topic with absolute certainty and being able to point to science that it's tryptophan that does it. Unfortunately, none of it's true. 
What was it? Is it like the, the roast beef industry? Or no, I think I think this time it's less about financial, com- you know, financial conflicts of interest or a bad actor with the sense that I want to make money off of you. As in that I think you might have hit the nail on the head before. People want to exit the situation. They want to be tired. They want to take a nap. They've had enough. I, I'd sort of liken this one to the idea that, you know, when people say, oh, don't go in the water for 30 minutes after you've eaten, you're, you're going to get a stomach ache. No one's making money off that. That's probably parents who just want to break and don't want to have to watch their kids in the pool <laughs> right after they've eaten lunch. I think this is like that. We've made a decision about what we want in life, but we don't want to take responsibility for it. Turkey and tryptophan are a nice, uh, you know, thing to blame. In other words, uh, it's not that I don't like the company. It was just the turkey. Correct. Exactly. <laughs> Dr. Eric Carroll, thank you. This year I'll have a second helping, and I won't worry about falling asleep. Thanks. Great. Thank you. That was Dr. Eric Carroll, professor of pediatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine, also contributor to the New York Times Upshot column. Right now, I'm heading over to the Kitchen in Milk Street to chat with Catherine Smart about a whole new way to roast your Thanksgiving turkey. Catherine, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? I'm good. My favorite day is coming up Thanksgiving, as you well know. But for over three decades, I've been doing a Thanksgiving bird recipe every year. And I finally swore that off. I would never do it again. And here I am doing it again. Uh, Someone we know in China actually suggested there are tea-smoked birds there. And uh, we thought that was kind of an interesting notion, but we weren't actually going to smoke a bird, but we liked the flavor concept. So uh, tea smoking, does that make any sense for Thanksgiving? It does, Chris. This is a really interesting recipe because, like you said, we borrow that really savory, smoky flavor. We use a lapsang souchong, which is a smoked black Chinese tea. And because we have this lovely smoky tea, there's no smoking involved. Nothing is lit on fire. We get that flavor in a couple of ways. First, we make a dry rub with a little bit of white pepper, and we just rub the outside of the bird with that smoked black tea. And then to really kind of drive home the point that we want that smoky flavor with very little work, we make a strong brew tea, and that's the base of a, of a glaze that has maple syrup, which is a very you know traditional Thanksgiving ingredient, some soy sauce, um, and we use that to glaze the bird throughout the roasting process. Now, over the years, I've also done high heat, low heat, low heat, high heat, flip the bird, don't flip the bird, stuff it, don't stuff it. Did we just throw this in the oven? Have we finally gotten over all the... the the insane, you know, physics of roasting a bird? Thankfully, yes. I think a lot of that is people are just, you know, after 30 years looking for something to say. But we're going to keep it simple. It's roasted at 325 degrees for the entire time. Breast side up, like you would think. A normal person would roast a bird, no flipping. We have our dry rub, of course. Um, and then you do have to glaze the bird. But it's very simple. Every 30 minutes or so, we're just going to glaze the bird. And then, of course, we finish with a gravy because it's, it's Thanksgiving, Chris. So... It's a really interesting flavor, but it's not hard to get. It's not hard to get. And it also, I think it's worth mentioning, because this is such a traditional holiday for so many of us, it's not overpowering. I mean, you get this savory, smoky flavor, but it's not going to feel unfamiliar. It's just your typical bird, but sort of kicked up a notch, made that much more delicious with this, with this smoky tea. You thought you knew your bird, but maybe you don't. Catherine, happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to you, too. You can find our recipe for tea-rubbed maple turkey at 177milkstreet.com. 
I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, we answer all of your Thanksgiving questions, or most of them, with my co-host, Sarah Moulton, after the break. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability They'll have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This is Most Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Thanksgiving is just around the corner, so it's time for Sarah Moulton, my co-host and I, to start answering your turkey questions. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television and author of the book Home Cooking 101. Sarah, how are you? I'm great, Chris, and I think it's time to get to the phones. Open up the lines. Let's go. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Pamela Dom. Hi, Pamela. How are you? Good, thank you. How can we help you? 
Well, I have a, uh, just heard of a term called batch cocking. Mm-hmm. I've never heard of it before, but then I did a little research on it. It's an Irish term for butterflying. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's used in England, and it's just butterflying. You take out the... It is more fun to say, though, isn't it? It's a lot more fun, and it stops conversation. <laughs> yes. yes, it does. It always does. And, and I guess what I really was interested in is, you know, today people don't sit around the big table and carve the turkey like they used to. Right. And I just wonder if it wouldn't be easier just to do something like that with a turkey, just to cook it quicker. Yeah, it's a great idea. Now, the only problem is a turkey's big. And you need a great pair of poultry shears. Uh, would not do this with a knife. No, I wouldn't cut either. your hand off. True. Um, you definitely True. want to use a heavy-duty pair of shears, and you have to get a good pair that works well. And then you need to flatten, pound down on between the breast and the breastbone to flatten it. The advantage of butterflying or spatchcocking, of course, is that you can roast the whole bird and it'll come out evenly cooked. Much more evenly cooked. Yeah, and so and you much just, more evenly browned. You get a yeah. lot more crispy skin, which I'm a huge fan of. Because the skin's all obviously on top. And yeah. you can I would put think it, in it a, would cook quicker, too. Much, yes, yes. much quicker. Mm-hmm. But you need a pan that's large enough after right. you flatten the bird. So I, I don't think a 24-pound well. right. turkey this would work with, but I think a 12 or maybe even a 16. The only thing is some people cannot imagine not serving the whole bird. That's so silly. And so, well, I know, but some people go crazy if they don't see it's the just, whole bird. It, that whole process of carving at the table is so laborious, and the turkey gets cold. And I it's know, not it gets easy. Cold. It's not easy to carve it no. on the breast. You know, I no. take the whole breast off. It's so much easier to carve. So I say, yeah. go ahead right. and spatchcock your there's turkey. There's a skill involved in that alone, you know? Yes, there is. Sarah's right. The best way is to take each breast off the bone and put it on a board and just mm-hmm. cut it into slices. And Very that takes thin. about three minutes versus yeah. the 20 minutes of agony at the table. And, you know, the first person has their right. plate and the last person's waiting and, you know. Sure. It's all getting cold. So, yeah, spatchcock, go for it. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to say I'm a big fan of both of you, and I am just thrilled to have this time to speak. Well, really a pleasure and happy Thanksgiving. Yes, too. happy Thank Thanksgiving. You. Thank you very much. Okay. okay. Have a good one. You too. Bye. This is Milk Street Radio. Who's calling? Hi, this is Greg. Hi, Greg. How can we help you? Well, let's talk turkey. Oh, yes, let's. coming up. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I cook turkey for Thanksgiving. I cook it for Christmas. And I always have the same couple of problems. And it's mostly with the gravy. Okay. Normally, I put maybe two tablespoons of flour in the roux for every cup of stock. Mm-hmm. It comes out about the right thickness, and it seems okay. Except the roux seems to kind of overwhelm the turkey flavor in the stock, which is kind of delicate. Last year, for example, I backed off a little bit. I was closer to one tablespoon of flour, and turkey flavor came out a little better, but it was kind of thin. I'm not really sure how you find the balance, you know. Have Um, you tried a cornstarch slurry instead of a roux? No, you know, I haven't. I don't use a roux for my gravy. I actually braise a turkey, which means I have this wonderful stock in the bottom of the roasting pan. I let it sit, I defat it, and I use a slurry, a water of cornstarch, I whisk together, and then I can add as much as I want, whisk it in until I get the thickness I want. I think your problem is not the roux. I think that your stock is not as flavorful as, as you want it to be. What are you using for stock? Well, what I usually do is I buy some turkey parts, you know, maybe wings, Yeah. put a bunch of them in a big pot, put in some onions and, you know, celery and salt and pepper and different things, and let that boil for a couple hours. And then I strain 
all the stuff out of it. I almost never make a chicken stock without then going back after I've strained it and boiling it down by probably about a third after I've removed the fat off the top. Oh, you concentrate it after. Yes, yes, I do. And I wouldn't add salt to your stock because you might have so much that when you reduce it, it gets too salty. Chris started by saying that he had a very flavorful stock at the bottom of his pan. And I think that's really the key thing, whether you thicken it with flour or you thicken it with cornstarch. I go with a ratio of one and a half tablespoons of flour per cup. When I started braising the bird a few years ago, I put a bunch of leeks in. Leeks make the best gravy ever. It just has a great flavor. And just throw them in, you know, cut them in half, cut the green parts off, wash them quickly, throw them in. And the roasting also, I think, really helps. Yeah. Instead of simmering in water. Reduce it by maybe a third after yes. the stock is completely made. Mm-hmm. And so where do you guys come in on the cornstarch versus the roux? You think maybe try cornstarch? I don't think it really matters. I think the key thing, which Sarah picked up on, is is your stock highly flavorful before you thicken it? Right. You can do it any number of ways, but reducing it down is the easiest way to get more flavor. Just start with a lot of flavor, and then the starch, uh, the thickener, isn't going to muck it up. No, right. it shouldn't. Well, that's great. Great, right, thank Greg. you. Thank you much. Yeah, thank my you. My pleasure. Thanks for calling. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If you have a cooking failure, a conundrum, a complaint, or if you just want to ask us about how to roast the Thanksgiving bird, give us a ring at 855-426-9843, 855-426-9843, or send us an email at questions at MillStreetRadio. Com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Bob from Alexandria, Virginia. I have a question for you about pumpkin pie. Okay. I've been trying to make a denser version of pumpkin pie. And so this summer I've tried probably nine or ten different recipes from a variety of different magazines, cookbooks. And I was kind of hoping to make a classic version of a pumpkin pie with the flaky pie crust. You're using canned? I use canned pumpkin, yeah. yeah. You know, the the no-bake version has only egg yolks, and, you know, I think that might perhaps help it become denser. But the but, trouble with that, for some people who are concerned about salmonella, is then you're not cooking the eggs. Yeah, you know, I have the thermopen, and I, I cook it to 175 to 180 oh, well, on the stove. Then you're so fine. Yeah. I'm not worried about that. Okay. Well, um, there's a few things you can do, which you probably tried. You can take the pumpkin pie filling and put it in a skillet and cook it down. There's a tremendous amount of liquid in that, which will go away. Or throw in a 400-degree oven on a half-baking sheet and use a, a spatula to you know mix it up as you bake it. That would be one thing. The other thing is when you make a pie filling like pumpkin, do you heat it on top of the stove and then put it into the warm pre-baked crust? Because I find that also gives you a somewhat denser pie. Yeah, you know, I've done that because there are several recipes of the ones that I've tried that call for that technique, including, I think, the Milk Street pumpkin tart, mm-hmm. you know, which I, you know, I like the flavor of. But, but you know, I, I'm kind of just envisioning, a, you know, kind of closer to a cheesecake texture. I, wait a minute, I got an idea. Have you ever made yogurt cheese? I've made homemade yogurt. I don't think I've made Okay, well, yogurt cheese, you take yogurt and you put it in a double thickness of cheesecloth in a strainer and you strain it over a bowl overnight, 24 hours, 36 hours, and you end up with something that's really, really dense. You could do the same with a pumpkin. You could double layer of cheesecloth or you could even use a wet paper towel 
and put it in a strainer over a bowl, put it in the fridge, cover it so it doesn't pick up all the flavors, you know, other aromas from the fridge, and leave it 24 hours, and you will probably eliminate a ton of the water. Chris, what do you think about that? Man, that was that was a good one. Thank Where, you. Where'd you pull that one from? That was good. <laughs> My 40 years of experience. <laughs> okay, okay, just that. <laughs> so, Sarah, could I ask you, if you use the yogurt, therefore you wouldn't use any milk or cream? That would just be your... No, no, no. Oh, no, no. Very... Forget the yogurt. No, forget the I'm yogurt. not talking about yogurt. The reason I said just that Just you put the pumpkin pie filling in... Uh, oh, I yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. The reason I brought up the yogurt is because way back when I first started at Gourmet, I made quote-unquote yogurt cheese. Uh, well, it's cheese. You know, all you do is drain it, and then you add flavorings to it, and it gets dense like soft mozzarella. Okay. So that's, right. I thought, why not? Good you idea. know, it's same thing. I think this will work beautifully. Please yeah, let us know. I very much appreciate that, and I'll be trying that very soon. Thank you. Thanks, okay. Bob. Okay, bye. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Adam Gopnik is a staff writer for The New Yorker. In his new book, he recounts his early years in the 1980s in New York. I asked Adam to describe his very first Thanksgiving meal as a new resident of Manhattan. Adam, I think I should say Happy Thanksgiving. And I should say Happy Thanksgiving back to you. Where will you celebrate this year, Christopher? Vermont. It's, it's in hunting Vermont? season. Yeah. I'm, in I'm... Vermont, hunting season, turkeys, all those things. Well, I assume so, but of course you've made some bold changes in your life and style, and so I was thought it possible that maybe you were headed off to Ho Chi Minh City or something. No, no, no it'll be in a little cabin on a mountain. Uh, and, and you will be in New York, I assume? Uh, we'll be in New York as we have been, Martha, my wife, and I have been now uh, celebrating for fully 30 years. 1987 was the first year where we did our own Thanksgiving. Um, as you know, Chris, I've got a new book out. Uh, It's a memoir of um, the 80s in New York called At the Stranger's Gate, Arrivals in New York. And I write a lot about food in it. I write about, you know, my early experiences cooking according to my mother's recipe books. When we moved into the world's smallest apartment, a 9 by 11 room on the Upper East Side, my mother sent me off with her favorite cookbooks, which were Escoffier's Dictionary of Cuisine, Sim Quebec's Cuisine and Julia Child's two volumes. And you can imagine how well adapted they were to a three-burner stove in a 9 by 11 room. And it, it got me thinking. The one thing I didn't write about in this book was Thanksgiving. And it made me think about something that you and I have talked about often, Chris, and that is just how radically the demands we make on our own cooking have changed in tune with the demands we make on the food we go out to eat. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that in that those years, I was absolutely enamored of the great French restaurants of New York, where, of course, I never went to eat, to such a degree that I would go walking by a restaurant like Le Côte Basque or Le Caravelle, all gone now, and I would leap up to leap above the lace curtains that, as you recall, <laughs> lined those windows remember, just yeah. to get a glimpse of the red banquettes and the white tablecloths and the jacketed waiters. There was a whole world and a glamour associated with that. And part of that glamour that we associated with it was technique, preparation. And I was thinking just the other day about our first Thanksgiving, Martha's and my first Thanksgiving. What we went through in order to put Thanksgiving on the table for our seven friends was quite crazy. For instance, we did an elaborate tangerine glaze for the turkey that involved five different ingredients from fresh tangerines to Chinese five-spice powder. And 
And I know you will take my word for it, Chris, when I say that it made absolutely no difference whatsoever to the taste of the turkey when it finally emerged. We did a chestnut stuffing in which we actually roasted the fresh chestnuts, whole chestnuts, <laughs> uh, and then burned our fingers. I think my fingers still bear the scars of that night Cracking in them shelling them. Yeah. It was part of the ethic of eating still in the 1980s that the greater the degree of difficulty, the more your preparation mimicked that of a great French restaurant, the closer you were to culinary greatness. And I truly remember that those first two Thanksgivings we did, 1987 and 1988, though joyous occasions involved, without exaggeration, getting up at 5 a.m. in order to have dinner on at 5 p.m. And there seemed something sort of virtuous about the undue strenuousness of that activity. And it strikes me as really startling now, and it's something, of course, Christopher, you've been writing about. It's up in your Milk Street cookbook. The degree to which we all unconsciously aped not just the outer manners, the things that I leapt up to look at in those restaurants, but the inner manners, right. what we imagined were going on in those great French three-star kitchens in order to put food on our table. Now, I cook my turkey for two and a half or three hours. I no longer do chestnuts. I do dried cherries. I've simplified my cooking method because we have all learned generationally that the joy of cooking lies in the intensity of flavor, right. not in the exhaustion of preparation. And what was once a 5 a.m. to 6 p.m. day now is more likely a 2 p.m. to 5.30 p.m. day with a lot of drinking along the way. Yeah, I, I've been trying to explain this now for a year and a half. Uh, you just did the perfect job. It's not about the technique. It's about the intensity and complexity of flavor, which isn't necessarily related to the time invested. No. In, in fact, it, it usually has the inverse right. uh, thing. Exactly. And one of the things we love about French cooking, and I'm back from Paris just last week, and I had my usual verklempt moment, you know, I, the moment we all dream of in Paris. You know, first night, you're still jet-lagged. We went out to an old bistro that we like, Chez André, and got the Giraud, you know, Chanterelle, as we right. call them, sautéed with a bit of garlic and a bottle of good Côte de Rhone. And tears fill your eyes because right. you feel you're in touch with all those beautiful continuities of French culture. But so much of French technique and of the French tradition, which I revere, comes out of aristocratic demands and out of restaurant possibilities, stuff that you really do have to start doing at five in the morning. Now, I don't go as far as my friend Calvin Trillin, right, who believes we should abolish turkey altogether and simply all have Chinese spaghetti food. carbonara yes. for Thanksgiving. But I do think strongly that I'm startled by how different my Thanksgiving is now than it was then and what things I give thanks for. Can, can I ask you a question? Sure. You have a cultural appreciation for and tie to France and Paris. You lived there in the 90s. And a lot of your cooking comes back from your memories and, and sort of your cult, cultural heritage, right. at least from a culinary point of view. Now we're ditching Northern Europe to open up to the world. Does this mean something on a broader scale than just culinary? That's a very good question, and I, th I think it does. Look, we live in a transformed world. One of the things that's been true now for a while is you get better food from the, uh, the trucks and the carts from the Middle East in New York City than you do from many of the places you go to sit down to eat. That's changed everything. 
uh, we look to Jerusalem for inspiration. We look to Vietnam for inspiration right. and Thailand. So we're living through a culinary revolution that reflects, as all culinary revolutions do, an ethnographic revolution. And we see it in our own little Thanksgivings. There's a reason why I no longer uh, peel chestnuts by hand, but instead have a combination of hot peppers and dried cherries in my stuffing every year. Adam Gopnik, if your Thanksgiving has changed and mine has too, then <laughs> the rest of the world is probably ahead of us. Way ahead of us. Way, way, way ahead of us too, old guys. Adam, thank you so much. Pleasure talking, Chris. That was Adam Gopnik, staff writer for The New Yorker. To round out our Thanksgiving special this week, we're headed to Formaggio Kitchen in Cambridge to speak with my wine expert, Stephen Muse, about the very best wines for the holiday meal. Stephen, how are you? Good, Chris. Uh, it's the holidays. Thanksgiving is upon us, yep. and we'd like you to opine on what to buy for the table. Now, you often come up, which I like, a very populist approach, <laughs> which is don't just go buy the most expensive wine. So uh-huh. we have Burgundies. Which yeah. are, in fact, the most expensive wine. Yeah, they're not what we'd call a populist drink, no. are they? Well, we're going to drink some Burgundy today because Burgundy is wonderful. Burgundy is the aristocracy of the wine world. I don't feel at all reluctant to sort of admit that. And it is something that I'm reaching for, for a kind of a special occasion. But let's face it, it's really expensive. So the idea today here is for us to point you in the direction of some ways to get a foothold here with some versions of it that show you terrific burgundy character but are on the affordable side. So Chris, we've got four wines for you to taste today. We've got a white and we've got three reds. They're all from a single region, sub-region in Burgundy, which I'm gonna talk to you about later. The first one is from Montagny. It's a Premier Cru vineyard and I'd like you to just begin by giving that a try. It's a classic white burgundy. It has mm-hmm. the, the Chardonnay grape. It has that certain smoky oakiness to it, but not overly done. Yeah. Which is why white burgundies are better than California Chardonnays. <laughs> it has that acidity and crispness and flintiness yeah. at the base. You know, it's a great it's a honey, white burgundy. I think. Yeah. It's pretty good. I think it's super. That's about a $35 bottle here. So wine number two, red wine from the village of Ruyi, township of Ruyi, 2014. Let's what this is a home that. run. This is, I like red wines that have a lightness to the finish. They're yep. not hugely alcoholic or tannic. Yeah. They don't kill your palate. You want to drink more of it. This yep. is a wine you want to keep drinking. It's delicious. Isn't it, it has lots of flavor. Delicious is right. It's something you can drink. A lot of heavy red wines, one sip and you're, right. you're done. It has this appetizing quality. And it's energetic. Yeah. Red Burgundy number three from the village of Givry. This is also a Premier Cru vineyard. It's a 2015, so a different vintage from the one that you just tasted. This is a little deeper with a heavier finish, but it's not heavy. It also has a, a really interesting vegetal flavor to it. Yeah. It's a little more of a heavy weight than the welterweight yeah. of, of the first one. Yeah. But it's still a, a very nice wine. Yeah, so. a little bit richer in this vintage, and this is something you and I have talked about, that everybody wants a richer vintage, a riper vintage, but you do give away a little bit of freshness. So this is uh, Old Vine Pinot Noir from the village of Mercure. Francois Raquier is the maker. And what do you think of this? I think it's a very solid wine. It doesn't have the highlights of the other two red wines. I mean, it's not as interesting and complex. Mm-hmm. 
it's just a solid. It's a little sturdier, isn't it? I mean, I put it in the lineup it's solid, number four. It's, yeah. it's more workmanlike, yeah. but it doesn't have the high notes of the other two. Mm -hmm. These are all burgundies, white and three red. All very good. Some of them I just adored. But why are you suggesting them for my table? One of the things our listeners need to know is that these are all from one sub-region of Burgundy called the Cote Chalonnaise. And it's just below where the most expensive vineyards are. And this is where we go at Formaggio to look for value-priced Burgundy that really delivers the Burgundy character. All in the mid-30s. And I think just fabulous for the holidays because, hey, it may be baby Burgundy, but it's Burgundy, baby. <laughs> it's, you know, it's exciting to have Burgundy on your table. I think they pair beautifully with food. You mentioned it, the weight, the proportion, the scale. It's great at the table. It's not overwhelming. And there's just something thrilling about having Burgundy at no, your no, table. Let me ask you a question. about We haven't mentioned the prices of the top-notch Burgundies. Yeah, okay. I was at a, a few years ago in Paris at a famous slash tourist trap restaurant. <laughs> and there was a half bottle of a white Burgundy, I won't mention the name, for between 150 and 200 hour euros for a half bottle. Yeah. How is that possible? It's possible because unlike in Bordeaux, where you have these estates that tend to produce elite wines on a rather large scale, we're talking about tiny vineyards, right? And a lot of them are just bought out by collectors and Burgundy so hounds. Supply and demand. Oh, you know, it just goes away. So the rest of us are left to sort of fend for ourselves here when it comes to finding affordable Burgundy at the table. And I think these just, you know, completely hit the mark. So for really great Burgundies in the 30 to $40 range from the Coach Chalonnaise, south in price and yeah. south in geography, That's right. of course. Yeah. And you solved at least some of my Thanksgiving problems. Thank you, Stephen. Okay, Chris. Thank you. That's it for this week's Thanksgiving special. If you just tuned in and missed our show, you can listen to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, or Spotify. Remember to please subscribe to the show. You'll automatically get every single show downloaded to your laptop or phone each week. If you want to learn more about Milk Street, head to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, subscribe to our magazine, watch our first season of Milk Street Television, or order our new book, The Milk Street Cookbook. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening, and a very happy Thanksgiving. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producers, Melissa Baldino and Stephanie Stender. Producer, Amy Padula. Associate producer, Carly Helmetag. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugarts. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison, with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production help, Debbie Paddock. Our theme music is by Two Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. <laughs>